Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. But I want to welcome today Dr. Leonard Mladnow, who, uh, <clears throat> whose books have uh, been entertaining me and educating me for many decades now. I first read your book on Feynman. Um, I think that was one of the first books I, I read by you, at least. And today we're talking about the book that's behind me and behind Leonard, and that is Stephen Hawking, uh, A Memoir of a Friendship uh, in Physics. Uh, and I want to welcome you to, uh, to the Into the Impossible podcast, Leonard. Thanks for joining us. Oh, happy to be here. So uh, you are known for many things. You're a theoretical physicist in your own right. You're an author. Uh, you've written many books, uh, two at least, with uh, Stephen Hawking and now this new book. So The Grand Design, of course, Runaway bestseller, A Briefer History of Time, uh, which maybe we'll have some chance to talk to uh, talk about. Uh, you wrote Subliminal, which won the Penn Award, and uh, also War of the Worldviews with a friend of mine, Deepak Chopra. And oh, one, of, one of the questions I'm going to talk to you about uh, is these interesting collaborations that you've managed to put together for yourself and advice for people like me when asked if uh, why I go on, you know, and, and do interviews with Deepak Chopra or somebody else. Not to mention the fact that, you know, he, he was uh, he's one of the endorsers of Frank Wilczek's books, who I've had on my show. But they'll make fun of him for not being a scientist and why should I, you know, give credibility to that. I, I want to talk about that later. But first, I want to um, uh, just read a quick blurb about the essence of this new book, uh, of your book of, about Stephen Hawking and your friendship and your collaboration together primarily on the grand design. And the statement that I have here is that you are able to put the reader, and I agree with this, into the room where it happened, in the words of uh, Alexander Hamilton, uh, <laughs> uh, if you will, for, for sharing these intimate moments of, uh, of a friendship that in some ways, that sometimes uh, we note as scientists, we spend more time with our collaborator and our students than we do with our spouses or children. <laughs> so I want to commend this book to people that are interested in seeing scientists as human beings. I, I often joke... You know, I've used this joke too many times, but, but you know, you know, a scientist is outgoing when he or she looks at your shoes when he talks to you. <laughs> uh, but you're, uh, you're, you're much more gregarious and extroverted than that. So anyway, thank you for doing that. I want to also begin where I do normally. Uh, I ignore the advice to not judge books by their covers. I, I first and foremost judge books by their covers and their titles. How did you come up with the title and the cover of this particular book? Well, uh, you know, I, I we thought long and hard, uh, and as you know, it's not the most creative title. <laughs> so, uh, what was left when, uh, as Sherlock Holmes would say, when when all uh, other things were 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 um, um, ruled out, uh, was uh, what you might think is the impossible. Let's just call it Stephen Hawking. Um, I, I tried to come up with something, and I, you know, sometimes, you know, sometimes uh, when I write a book, it's interesting. The, the title shouldn't mean that much, but you feel like it does. And I don't know, you know, you attribute later after the fact um, that people, you know, like the book, remember the book partly because of the title. You don't really know if, if they, if they, if people like the title, you say, "Wow, that was a great title." If it turns out they didn't like the title, you say, "Yeah, I had a crappy title." But actually, you don't really know what effect the title has on a book. And yeah. um, like, I love Drunkard's Walk, which my um, which I wrote, which is about how randomness uh, in the world affects your life, your life. And 
uh, how much of your success and and even just wherever you are in life is due to random events and that you don't how hard it is to recognize realize and appreciate that so we call it the drunkard's walk because you know the drunkard's walk is another word for random walk in a mathematical term where something is just moving and changing directions randomly yeah and my publisher hated the title they, they said who knows what the drunkard's walk is i said well it's true they might not know what the drunkard's walk is but once they hear it and they find out what the book's about they won't forget it because it's kind of a nice you know it sticks in your mind they wanted to call it the power of probability oh <laughs> but, yes must must read that sounds like a must read right and, you know and certainly in hindsight people like the uh, the cover and they <laughs> like the, the title and uh in this case i was trying to find something like that where i, I would have a term or a phrase um, like for for example, um, uh, theory of everything would have been great. It would take it. So I couldn't find one, and I wanted you know I wanted one that would you know once you heard, you may not know immediately what it means, but once you said it was Hawking, you would remember the title. Yeah. I just couldn't find anything that was you know not misleading or obscure. And in the end, we just said you know let's let the subtitle say it all: a memoir of friendship and physics, and, and that's what it really is. That's what yeah. it's about. I wish I could have called it. A memoir of friendship and physics subtitle regarding Stephen Hawking. <laughs> but they wouldn't wow. let me do that. I was uh, jokingly going to suggest, you know, it's the most provocative of all your titles, most controversial, you know, the grand design that didn't cause any controversy whatsoever. <laughs> right, right. Or the war, war of the worldviews. It actually reminds me of this book uh, written by an up and coming author named Galileo. <clears throat> and uh, of course, the, the, the title is evocative or your book with Deepak is evocative of this uh, dialogue concerning the two chief world systems but i don't know if you know this that wasn't galileo's choice that was his publisher's choice or at least the the pontiff's choice that was acting as the uh, provider of the imprimatur that allowed him to publish this book in the first place galileo uh, wanted to call this book on the flux and reflux of tides on oceans and ferns. It's just, just like, oh, you can't put that down. You know, that's a, that survives A-B testing and whatever. So our friend Galileo, so the Pope actually ironically did him a real solid favor by making him uh, change the title to the Dialogue on the World Systems, which is much more evocative. So and, your publish, publishers he, sometimes he, know things that we don't know as often. Yeah, he's, I think he surprised the Pope with the contents, too. <laughs> That's right, yeah, and he kept it up, and his next book was also a dialogue, uh, The Discorsi. Um, I want to go to a part that um, the only encounter, I only met Stephen once. I was at Caltech for many years when he, when he was there and when you were there, and it's a shame I never met you there as a postdoc uh, or met Stephen, but I did meet him in the, in the early 90s, mid-90s, my first trip to so uh, Queen Mary College, as it used to be called. And that was um, when Stephen spoke, quote unquote, at the Royal Academy meeting. I believe it was 95 or so. And there was a question and answer period. And you very tenderly and lovingly describe how challenging, how it would have driven you mad. It would have driven me mad. The modality of communication he had was so torturous. But I remember somebody asked him at the end uh, of, the, of the talk, and they said, uh, Professor Hawking, you're so brilliant. You wrote a brief history of time. Uh, it's reputed that more, the ratio of people that have bought it to people that understand it is almost infinity. Uh, you know, because nobody understands it uh, who who reads it to good approximation. Why did you write this incomprehensible book? And this young person asked Stephen. And ten minutes go by, and he's he's working out the answer. This is when he could still move. I think he could move a finger at this point in the early '90s. But you'll know better than I do. But um, and he answered. I wrote it because I had to pay for my daughter's college. And everybody laughed. You know, it's kind of a cute line. 
But in reading your book, I, I realized that Stephen was uh, a very practical person and in a way that many of our colleagues are not. And actually, I, I think of him now after reading this as kind of the CEO of Stephen Hawking Enterprises, that he was an entrepreneur. He had a brand, obviously. He cultivated that brand, and he had a monopoly on that brand. Talk about Stephen as a businessman, which is a dimension of him that I never knew until I realized until I read your book. Well, you know, it's it's interesting. He didn't start out that way. Uh, in the early 80s, uh, he had the idea that of writing a popular science book on cosmology. And, and, you know, one big aspect of his character was an evangelist for science. He truly wanted to spread the word and the scientific way of thinking uh, really bothered him in his later years, for example, all the anti-science in the U.S. Uh, and so he was going to write a book uh, for the Cambridge University Press, which your, your, your viewers may not uh, know the, the uh, ins and outs of uh, academic publishing, but the Cambridge University Press, they were offering him 25000 which was huge at the time. That was huge. And it would have probably sold about 25 books. Um, and he would have had very little editorial uh, help. He uh, would have had very little marketing or no marketing. Uh, and he, he had agreed to do that and actually was going to, he had agreed to it, was, was waiting to sign the contract uh, when um, the, uh, what was it now, the uh, New York, uh, uh, was the New York Times, I guess, did a, did a feature on him. And that, you know, no one really outside of physics knew him before that. Not a lot of people knew him after. I mean, they didn't, it was one of the, just a feature. It wasn't like he got set, you know, his image, his brand was set on fire. But people in the, in the, in the know, people in, uh, in the intellectual circles really paid attention to that. And one of them um, was Al Zuckerman, uh, uh, the, uh, the founder of an agency, which is now my ag agency that I'm at, uh, Writer's House. And Al said, "Wow, this guy, uh, this 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 guy is great. Uh, he could, you know, he he loved the uh, based on the profile. He just loved Stephen's character that he seemed to be adventurous and uh, 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 outgoing and 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 evangelical. And the fact that he was in a wheelchair, so he so so Al went to him and and said, hey, 'Don't sign that contract if they give it to you. Let me see what I can do about this book.'" And he got two hundred fifty thousand dollars for that. Uh, which would become the brief history of time, and I think just as important, more important than the money, is he got uh, a bathroom as the publisher with a brilliant editor named Peter Guzzardi, and Peter deserves a lot of credit for that book uh, because Stephen's writing was, uh, you know, first of all, it was all over the place. Some parts were uh, as if he were explaining it to a kinder, or well, I should say, a, you know, an eighth grader, a sixth grader. And parts of it were good for his graduate students and everywhere in between. And parts of it, you know, when you're a physicist, as you know, you um, it's hard to get perspective. You sometimes uh, are so in love with some ideas and so passionate about them that you think everyone will like will be interested. In. And so there were parts that were overly technical and so forth. And so Peter worked very closely with Stephen to make that uh, book a success. Mm. And yeah. Around that same time, which is why it, it seems like he just wrote that book because he needed money, but he was actually um, interested in that. But around that time, he got one of his really bad uh, inf uh, lung infections. And every year he would have a lung infection or two and often in the hospital. And when I knew him, it was almost a yearly occurrence that he's on his deathbed and you're worried for him. Uh, it was very, very common because when you have um, ALS, you, you, 
your lungs aren't that active. And, and so things have settled down in there. And he had, you know, to breathe through, um, or later in life, through a stoma, a hole in his uh, throat. And uh, so um, around that time, 1985, he had this very severe problem. Which, and in order to survive, they had to make that stoma, which meant he couldn't speak anymore. And it also meant he really needed round-the-clock care after that as he was going further and further downhill. And that is what caused his need to be a businessman to start Stephen Hawking, you know, enterprises. Uh, so it was kind of a, a confluence of the fact that he had this opportunity and that the book took off and he had this need. And so what he did was put those two together and he realized that he needed to keep his uh, brand and his career going uh, just to afford to live. Just to Because yeah. a normal person in that situation that he was in would uh, be uh, in a home. And they would be in, in a bed somewhere, maybe in a in a room with other people, maybe you know, not 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 in a um, um, have a private room, and you 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 wouldn't have nearly the stimulation, the access, or the life that that he was able to have by having people carers who could take him around places, who could travel with him, uh, where he would have access to physics documents or people to turn pages for him, which they were doing uh, as the electronic age came. To the equipment that he could actually read online and so forth, he would have just been, you know, more or less, unfortunately and sadly, um, warehoused there. And he would have, you know, I'm sure, uh, had died much sooner than that because he would have no real reason to live. Yeah. And as it was, he, he was still able to do physics, to participate, to be a leader in the field, and to have this public life um, in the um, with his writing. And that's really what kept him alive. That's what gave, you know, that's what gave him the spirit to keep living. A lot of the, the uh, mortality uh, from from ALS is partly physical and partly because the person loses the, the desire or the will to, to live any longer mm -hmm. and um, to fight through all those infections and to have the care to, to you know, that, that kind of minute care. I'm just, I don't want to go on and on about just one example. Every night when he slept, he had to have his stoma cleared every, every so I forget how often it was, uh, every hour or something, or they, they would have to suction it out. He would suffocate. Mm -hmm. They had to turn him because he couldn't move. So if you lay in bed in a certain position, not only does it become painful to you, that's why we turn around at night, but after a while you develop bed sores and you blood clots and all sorts of things. So every couple hours they would turn him. Now it wasn't very pleasant for him because he couldn't turn when he wanted to. If he wakes up like we do and there's an ache, you can't just turn on your other side. It was almost like torture, but he was kept alive because they would do it periodically and they would keep bad things from happening. So, mm. so yeah, he became a... He saw that he needed that, and and and, uh, and he put all that together and made a business out of it. There's a <clears throat> old joke, uh, not to have too rugged a segue, but there's a joke. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld, you know, talks about like the reason that old people drive so recklessly, you know, and they back out of the driveway, they don't even turn around because I've lived this long, the hell with it, you know, I'm gonna go for it. Um, but it kind of made me wonder, he had a lot of, you know, gumption, or as we say, chutzpah. He had, uh, you know, he certainly had no fear, I think, of, as you recount in the book, when you yourself were quite trepidatious about asking for a doubling of your advance on a, on a contract that was imminently going to be signed. I, I wondered, do you think that stemmed from having overcome this annual battle with, with uh, brushes with death? Or do you think that's just the way he was? And even if he was, he was a brash guy, he, he was, uh, he had chutzpah. I mean, that's his physics is all about that. Like you look at what he did, he, he did things that people didn't think of doing or thought couldn't be done. 
he when he when he came up with the um, Hawking radiation and the black hole evaporation, he he went and spoke in front of a pretty hostile crowd, and 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 he could have just published it quietly in Nature, and let let people read it and draw their own conclusions. But he went up there and and before it was even published, and told people about it, and 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 took you know face face the music, and and so with the advance, I think at some point I'm not sure why he had agreed to the advance that we had, but it was it was not just about to be signed; the contract had been signed. And one day he just tells me, I'm going back to New York, you know, like I was in, in Cambridge working with him. Tell him I want to double the advance. <laughs> we have a signed contract. I don't think, I don't think you can do that. That's and right. he was like, you know, just do it. And, I, and when I went to, you know, the stories in the book, but when I went to tell uh, Al, who was still Steven's agent about yeah. it, my agent came with me as moral support. You know, it was quite a, you know, quite a, quite a scene because Al was a old time, uh, everything's a handshake kind of guy. And everything's done according to honors and 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 convention right. and, and tradition and, and honesty, and uh, he was very much against it. You know, at, you know, he was very much against it. But uh, if you read the scene, you'll see how it, you know he he did turn around and 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 of course they they did it. And um, the way book advances work, in case your viewers don't realize, is you know you you get a royalty on every book that's sold. So Steve and I would get a royalty. And the advance is you get a certain lump of money. And so as the books are sold in the beginning, they don't pay you. They just they just take an accounting until you get to that amount they give you in advance. But it's not just an advance. You get to keep it even if the book doesn't sell anything. <laughs> but the point is if a book sells a lot, it doesn't matter because it'll go past the advance. And it doesn't matter whether you got it in advance or you got it when it did the sales. So I'm sure the publisher felt that that was fine. But they they agreed to it. And when I went back and told Stephen, I thought he'd I'd get a good job, good work, or was it hard? Did they fight? But he, he, was, he was just like, yeah, of course they did. You just like, expected it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm Stephen Hawking, right? <laughs> well, talk about your um, your own chutzpah at, at a certain point in the book, which I found uh, very you know revealing about the true level of intimacy that you guys had. Because you know, for someone like me working with him, and I, I find this with Stephen's uh, late. Uh, was the late Stephen Hawking's great friend, Sir Roger Penrose, who's been on the show many times and we'll get to and hopefully in a few minutes. But, you know, when Roger comes up with something and I think it's, you know, it's out of left field, sometimes I feel reluctant to criticize him because of, you know, how much he means to me. He's the first book I ever read in popular science. He endorsed my book, you know, and so I'm more reluctant. But talk about the time when you you really had a slightly gently upbraid Stephen. And it's a very tender scene in the book that I found very revealing of your own courage to gently rebuke one of the greatest living scientists. Well, I guess you're talking about the scene where uh, we had been apart for a while and, and uh, he had, you know, the way we worked was uh, we first spent about a year designing what he called the plan the plan for the book uh like a beat sheet if you're a screenwriter you know and or the chapters but what's in the chapters and debating it endlessly back and forth i thought we were never going to stop and then one day he just said you know it's it's time to write okay mm -hmm. we weren't finished with it but whatever we started and the way we did it was he's taking certain sections to write and i'm or certain parts you know certain passages and i'm taking other ones and we would each do our own, uh, we would talk about it, then we would separate. He's in Cambridge and I'm in Pasadena and we would do our own uh, parts. And sometimes we'd email 
back and forth. And then we'd meet again. He would spend about three or four weeks every year in at Caltech. So I was right, it was right next to my office. So I would see him there pretty much day and night. And then I would go to Cambridge and see him. And so we would trade what we did. And then we'd sit side by side and go over what he wrote, what I wrote and so on. And, and one time, um, when I'm meeting him and, and we're supposed to be going over it, I realized he he hadn't done anything. He hadn't done his part and he hadn't read my part. And, and you know, it was like, you know, I had another book. I, I think, what was I working? I think it was subliminal about the unconscious mind. And I, and I had my own physics research. I had a lot to do on my plate and I'm feeling like stressed out trying to get my part done. And then I come to see him and tra-la-la, it's like months had passed and he hadn't done a thing. So uh, I was, as I described in the book, you know, I wasn't, I was a little nervous about about bringing it up, but I felt I, ha I have to bring it up because um, I couldn't not bring it up because how could I keep working this way? I mean, it, it, you know, I, either we just say let's not work or, or we have to both do things. I know I, I know the one thing that, that wouldn't happen is I just finish it and he says, fine. Because <laughs> if you read the book, you'll see that. No, 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 no. Every word he would uh, debate. Even the, even the last straw. Well, we Right, that's the last <laughs> straw, exactly, literally. So... Um, Anyway, I, I uh, you know, waited till we were alone and I brought up the courage and I confronted him with it. And, and I had no idea how he would react. I think in the book I had said, it, it, you know, when you have a relationship, say a romantic relationship uh, or a relationship with a really good friend, uh, one of the, the key things about the relationship is uh, not that you never have conflict, but how do you handle it when you have a conflict? So I That's thought, right. oh, I'm going to see. And actually it was great. He, he uh, was not. Uh, you know, he could be very um, gruff and very uh, uh, rough Crash. on a person with few, like... He didn't suffer if, fools if, lightly. Yeah, this? If, you're, say, if, you're, if you're not getting it, if you're stupid, or if he believes something very strongly and you disagree and don't come along with him, that would also be a time or, you know... Uh, but in this, in this instance, not, not at all. He, 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 he totally understood what I was saying, and he admitted it, and he apologized for it. And he said he had this had a, kind of a crisis of uh, not knowing, even though we had the plan, and we spent the year on it, you know, what is the book really about, and where are we going with this? And so I guess he had a kind of, I don't know, it was writer's block, or maybe never even sat down to have writer's block. It was simply avoidance, because he didn't feel uh, inspired, and, you know, in, in physics and in writing and other creative things you kind of need you need to have the craft that you do it day to day but you also need the impetus to spend that time sitting there and working like that and um but then we had had a talk the night before and we had worked some things out so he said i, I think i get it now i, I think i have a, a vision of it and it'll, i'll be better so luckily <laughs> you know that worked out okay or we probably wouldn't be here right today right. <laughs> <laughs> and so now getting you know to Stephen. Uh, a little bit more intimately, I find, you know, some of the arguments of the conclusions that Stephen, I never realized it, actually, honestly. So I'm reading a book now by a, um, an, a Christian apologist that he's, uh, his name is Dr. Stephen Meyer. He, he, I think he's either runs or affiliated with the Discovery Institute, which is, a, you know, intelligent design, essentially. But he has, a, 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 he wrote this book called Darwin's Doubt. You may have heard of it. Um, and uh, in that book, he spends a lot of time talking about Hawking. And so I went back because he's asking me, you know, what are my thoughts on it? Can he come on the show? And I hope to have him on the show. Uh, he's had I actually asked him, does he have questions for Leonard? So I'll ask you his questions. But they're 
basically ones you you would expect about the multiverse, et cetera, which hopefully we'll get to. But but in any case, I never realized how much of a polemic, in some sense, a brief history of time was about perhaps you know first of all the singularity um, uh, work that he had worked on in the in his PhD thesis, popularizing that. But really confronting this notion of God, and, and you talk about this in Stephen in, in the current book in your memoir of friendship with Stephen Hawking, uh, and you talk about you know he he was of two minds. I mean he was certainly uh, as we said he wouldn't suffer fools, but he would on other occasions you say that he would say things like religion is for people that are afraid of the dark. Uh, that's a very and some of his um, his romantic uh, you know partners. I can't remember. He had so many. Some were married. Some weren't. Uh, but you know, some of them were deeply religious, and some were not. I think the um, his first wife was religious. Is that right? Um, oh, yeah, actually, Jane. Um, yeah, his first wife, his second wife, and then his girlfriend at the end. They were all deeply religious. Yeah. So he didn't want to insult them, but I, I, and and of course he would. He's too smart to say I'm an atheist, and he was very. Um, you know, almost apoplectic at the criticism that he got always just, you know, dumping on God and the Catholic Church was very upset about him. But in reality, I think his his views were kind of clear in that I don't think he believed in God. It doesn't mean that he he, he would be like a Dawkins, a militant atheist. Uh, necessarily, and I think he thought those were that was a mistake to act in that way towards uh, believers. But nevertheless, my sense is that he definitely didn't believe even in the God of Einstein, the pantheistic Spinoza God. Um, why didn't he? You know, why didn't he make that more clear? Because I, I want to be careful not to ascribe, uh, you know, like a venal motive, like it would hurt book sales to 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 say that God doesn't exist. But it seems so clear that a lot of his work was predicated at least in the singularity work that he worked on and in the grand design, obviously, that God, you know, the act, the personal God, that was a non-existent concept for him. Right. So first, uh, I, I guess I should say, it's funny that uh, just to go to something you said toward the end about whether he was not talking about his atheism in order to, because he didn't want to hurt book sales. It, he, he's been criticized for that. He's also been criticized for the opposite, right. for, for talking about atheism or implying atheism to help book sales. And I think these uh, ad hominem attacks that people make on him uh, are ridiculous. And I knew him, and I know what he was thinking, so I'll tell you. But, yeah. but and let me also give you a little data. Uh, when the grand design came out, uh, I was walking my daughter to school. She was, uh, Olivia was like in... Um, so I forget, second, third grade or something, and I get a call from Judith, Stephen's assistant. It's uh, whatever time it is there. It's uh, the evening, I guess, and it's early morning here in, here in L.A. And, and she, I need help answering. I need help with these reporters. I need help, help us report. What's going on? I mean, there's no reporters here. You know, and, and the book had just come out, and, and she said, oh, my God, uh, every, every news organization in the world is calling me, and Stephen can't handle it. You have to answer the questions for him. Uh, she said, haven't you seen it? Haven't you seen the Times? And I go, the, the Times? The LA Times, the New York Times? The London Times. I said, Who reads the London Times? <laughs> I'm a daily so, subscriber. You know, I... The headline is uh, Stephen Hawking, colon, uh, there is no God. Right. I remember that. Our yeah. book became number one immediately in the New York Times bestseller list. So in terms of, you know, hiding the atheism to... Uh, to uh, to help book sales, uh, it, you know, it could you could argue both ways, but in that case, it certainly helped uh, the atheism help book sales. Not that people um, that that you know, both atheists and theists bought the book because the controversy helps the book sales. And we were condemned by the Catholic Church by all sorts of people, 
And I, I'm turning on pretty soon ESPN and then it's some kind of sporting event going on and they start talking about my book. And I'm, oh my God, if ESPN, Men's Health Magazine interviewed me. I, I mean, it was like, so I don't know. Anyway, it's kind of silly to say he did one or the other. What, what the truth is that he was an atheist and yet he went to church. He went to church with his wives. He respected their, their belief, their, their church. Uh, he, I, he's buried. Uh, he's, he's, his funeral was Westminster Abbey, right? Right. And, and his interment, his, his funeral was at the church. And, um, um, you know, he, he even I heard the story of the time where he, he actually was brought to tears by the sermon and the music at the, at the church. So he, he was not anti-religious at all. He told me once, uh, it was a little bit after Dawkins' book came out. Uh, what was it called? The God delusion. Yeah. That he did not want to be like him. He did not want to insult people, uh, his wives, his friends, or anybody out there, um, you know, who, who believes in God. So that's why he kind of kept, he tended to keep yeah. that to himself. But what he wanted to do, and he said, our book is not an argument against God. Our book says you don't have to have God. Okay. The universe can come from nothing. Right. Uh, and the laws of nature can be explained in the way we did in the grand design. But it's not to say there isn't a God. Uh, we don't prove that the non-existence. Yeah. You just say that you just kind of, we don't try to prove anything. We just try to say what science says and let you, you know. Um, yeah. It's funny, you know, Leonard. I, they, he, I mean, he, he was critical of the church when, uh, when sure. we talk about Galileo's time, for instance. I mean, it's not like he thought that, that all that was okay. But, but he wanted to present the science and he wanted to know for his own edification, why are we here? Where did we come from? How did the universe get to be the way it is? And those were the answers he wanted to present. And of course, religion has the same question, so they have two different answers. Right. But he didn't have an axe to grind one way or the other. Yeah, so I think about him as a, as a deeply devout uh, agnostic in a, in a sense that I'll make clear, and I feel that way about myself, although I do practice Judaism. But um, you probably know, being culturally, at least uh, biologically Jewish as well, the word Israel in Hebrew means struggles with God. It's, it's very different than Islam, which means submit to God. And obviously Christianity just is named after Jesus Christ. But, uh, but Israel means to wrestle with God, literally to fight. I mean, there's a scene in the Old Testament where Jacob is wrestling with an angel of God. But not only that, it means to every day really fight with this notion or take the notion of God seriously. In that way, I think of Stephen as like an Israelite, you know, somebody who struggled constantly. He never dismissed it as a folly or a stupid question like a Lawrence Krauss might or a or a Richard Dawkins might that it's child abuse and certainly wasn't acerbic about it. Um, but, you know, since he's not here, but you are here, I've, I've always been fascinated by your views on it, because as I say, you know, I know that you're culturally Jewish, um, but I, I don't know how, what role it plays in your life of any. That's not actually not that important to me. But what I'm what I'm interested in is, yeah, this notion that um, I, I, I observed myself when the BICEP2 experiment, when we released our, our results in 2014, um, you know, Stephen Hawking gave talks about it, pointed to it, you know, it's amazing you know, with the laser pointer. And he, you know, gave a talk in Cambridge about this. And it often seemed that he was a little bit overtaken by the power of these ideas that he had. And let me give an example, like the singularity theorem. I've had this conversation in the last month or two with Lenny Susskind, with Sir Roger Penrose, uh, and with uh, Frank Wilczek, and many, many others. Uh, about whether or not you know the notion of a singularity 
uh, even should be taken seriously in, in the following context. We don't believe there are naked singularities that you can observe or witness to, to Sir Roger's chagrin. Um, and so these singularities are forever firewalled off in the case of black holes by an event horizon, as Stephen worked on with Sir Roger. And, uh, and then in the case of, of the Big Bang singularity, uh, that is also outside of our cosmological horizon, as close as we could possibly get um, to it is perhaps the inflationary epoch that I study observationally. But the question I have for all these people, and I want to ask you as a physicist, now forget about Stephen for a minute, but um, do we have any reason to believe that a singularity is real, or is it merely the consequence of, of extrapolating general relativity to its ultimate conclusion? Do we have any reason to think that a singularity actually exists? Wow, okay, that's quite a question that could be answered on different levels. Um, and I, I, I know you want to know asking me, not Stephen, but I yeah. can't, I still hear Stephen in my okay. head. Yeah, I'll take both of you guys for, for yeah. the answer. You know, in the grand design uh, we wrote, uh, and of course the, the new book is about our, that process, and I talk about how at one point we had this little discussion where he had told me that he wants to write about uh, a new philosophy for physics, which answers questions such as you just asked. And, and then he also said, he, in, in some prose that he sent me, uh, he wanted he was going to write philosophy, you know, used to explain the universe, but philosophy is dead. <laughs> and I said, well, how can the book be... You know, first of all, how can a book be a new philosophy for physics? And then we say that that's the philosophy that it's dead. <laughs> and I said, plus you're going to insult a lot of philosophers, and they may not be doing the philosophy of um, they don't be they're not natural philosophers. We're trying to explain the origin of the universe. They're they're doing ethics or they're doing the philosophy of language or whatever. They're you know, uh, so let's not make a blanket statement. And then we had this kind of argument where he says yes, but your sentence has no punch. And then I. I would argue some more, and then he'd say it even louder, and I finally gave up because I thought it was going to hit me. So we've said, you know, that philosophy is dead, and and you know, and we did get a lot of um, flack, especially from philosophers, you know. Um, and so he was okay pissing off uh, philosophers, but not uh, theists. That's interesting. Yeah, that's <laughs> yes, right. Well, so and, and, yeah, and, and I think, when I, as I said in the book, uh, when I finally said we're going to get a lot of flack, uh, you know, you know, we're going to get. He just smiled, and I think he liked that idea. So. Um, but his philosophy, what it was, would addresses questions like that. So he recognized that in physics, um, like with the multiverse and with singularities, we have um, our, new, our, our, our theories bring up, um, bring up um, phenomena or uh, situations that are not observable. And we know that physics is about observables. So what, how do we reconcile that? And, and you know, the idea is that a a theory has to be testable, certainly. And uh, so you have to, it has to give some predictions that weren't there before, and you test them and you find that, that it works and it fits all that. If it has other predictions, like a singularity or parallel universes that are uncoupled that we can't get to, that's not bad. That doesn't, that doesn't, it's not like saying our theory makes no predictions. That's not the same thing. Theory makes predictions that we can confirm. It also makes other predictions that we can't confirm. And so, um, okay, that's, that's okay. So the question is, now you talk to a philosopher who says, what does that mean, like you just did? <laughs> and, and, um, and this is what his model-dependent realism was. You know, it, 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 he was also recognizing that, um, so he said, to, look, to understand what this means, you have to realize, first of all, that we can have multiple theories that describe the same thing, right? For example, 
just take quantum theory. As you know, there's different formulations of quantum theory. There's the more standard ones that came up in the 30s from Schrodinger and Heisenberg. And forget about which pick, which um, picture you take or which um, interpretation, whether it's the Copenhagen. Just look at quantum theory as it was invented. And then you look at Feynman coming in the 40s and a totally new formulation of quantum theory that looks at it differently, right? Feynman, so, so, so the, other, the original one, is based on all these waves, matter and energy waves and uncertainty. And, and his is based on the fact that he says that the history of any situation, the, the, the unfolding of events, uh, does not, there's not a unique unfolding of events in the quantum world. There are, there are many or infinite occurring kind of at the same time. And when you, when you make an observation, it, it, you know, they, they all affect what, what you're measuring. It doesn't matter with the details, but there's two different pictures of the world. And they, they may have, it's been proven that they give exactly the same uh, predictions in all cases. So they're equally good. But, do, you know, do you think of the world as having all these multiple histories in parallel? Or do you not? Do you think of it the other way? So, so Stephen was saying that, there are, that, that you have to recognize that, that a scientific theory should not be taken literally. And, and, and so if we say, you know, and, and that, but, but being very practical he says you don't even ask if there's an objective reality out there okay because we know that that that, that our theories are filtered and and, and 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 formed through the brain of the human and, and that that in itself imposes certain orders and certain concepts and aliens with a different brain or a frog if it was smart enough uh, you know you know with its architecture of its brain would would have different theories and we believe in the end that all these theories would agree on their predictions, but through the uses of different concepts. So depending on which theory you use, you know, you can picture it in your head as being real. But but is it is a singularity real if you can't if you can't get to it because of the black hole horizon? Um, you know, he would say it's you may as well think of it. He would say think of it as being real, but be open to an to a parallel theory where they don't exist. And just be happy with that. <laughs> so that's why he called it model-dependent realism. So he felt that you should, you kind of take it as being real, but um, but you realize that it depends on your reality, depends on your model. Yeah. So, you know, in a way, it's in between. I talked to philosophers about this who weren't to the ones who, who weren't throwing stones, <laughs> and they said that you know they, there's a philosophy called realism, and I'm not a philosopher, which is one reason neither was Stephen. Yeah. We didn't really want to write about. I didn't think we should write about this too much. But anyway. There's realism, which says people think that the laws of physics are describing something that's really there, that's concretely, and they are a um, just a description of it. Um, and, and then there's anti-realism, which, which says that the um, theories that we make are kind of all in our head. Uh, they're a way of, of, of our dealing with the sensory input. And there's no deeper meaning to them than that. So, so if I could uh, interject uh, just an example. So I often say, like, have you ever seen a triangle? Well, I mean, I could conceive really. of a triangle, but I've never seen a triangle that has zero, three zero-dimensional points, right? So, is that an example of anti-realism, essentially? Uh, so, so that does. So, this goes back to Plato, right? And Plato said that 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 we um, can. There's an ideal world, which is the real triangles where the lines have zero um, width and the points have zero dimension, right? Uh, and then there's the real world, which is all that which we're were um, confined to perceiving, which are, let's say, triangles drawn on paper, which are some kind of approximation of these ideal forms, right? And, and so 
the, the, so I think the uh, anti-realist would say that um, a triangle is, is just a, a, a human imagination and, none, and, and doesn't reflect any, anything in the world deeper than that. Whereas a realist uh, would say a triangle is maybe an idealization, but it's an idealization of something that's really there. Hmm. So you know, like the Matrix, take the Matrix movie, right? That, that, that is a good, uh, uh, let's say, uh, illustration of what could be the truth, right? I'm not saying that I believe that it's the truth, but, but look, we don't know the difference. We can't tell, you know, are you really there? Or I, I could just be a brain floating in space, you know, Boltzmann's brain, you may remember that. that yeah. Story. yeah. So, so I might be a brain, and, and all the experiences that I'm having, which have come through my own sets and are perceived by my brain, um, uh, aren't, don't really exist. They're all a big dream that I'm having, or I'm a, in a computer or something. You know, yeah, Descartes, like, right. Says, the brain think, in a bottle, yeah. Descartes said, I think therefore I am, but I think, so, so he's saying the only thing you know about is, is that you exist, right? Yeah. So, and then, of course, I felt like Descartes copped out because he appeals to God and the ultimate uh, extension yeah. of that. But I guess with physical, ob so a triangle, I agree, you know, it's not something, uh, it's almost immaterial if that, if, if it exists or if it's only a concept, you know, I had a conversation with Jim Simons about, you know, is math invented or discovered? And his answer is basically yes, you know, both. Uh, but in the concept of a physical quantity, I call this the hard problem of singularities uh, when I talk to people about this. And that's, you know, a physical quantity like temperature, density, um, uh, or, you know, or, or math, you know, infinite cannot be infinite. And then like Zeno's paradox, how does it taper down to be a finite value? You know, a minute after the, the Big Bang began, if it's infinite, it, how, how could it be a finite temperature? You know, it's the Zeno's ver well, version of Zeno's cosmology. But as we know, that's all fine mathematically. So, uh, you know, one over X at zero, it is infinity. Anywhere right. away from zero, as soon as you get as, as little as you want, it's finite. So. Right. And that was what sort of I felt like, you know, just again, being, and it's unfortunate, Stephen's not here, but but I felt like at certain points he would say it's almost immaterial if it's really a singularity or if it's essentially the Planck length. And, and you guys discussed this a little bit, but he discussed this in the uh, structure of space time with Ellis. And, you know, as... But I think that that's the key. That's the key nugget, you know. Is if it's if it really is zero, you know, how does time progress infinitesimally before the, the universe itself exists? For example, is a big question. Uh, uh, but but really, what I want to get back to is is more not not the specific details of of even what you believe, but the notion that um, you know what what you talk about in the book is that you know Stephen says a law is not a law with God. In other words, if you have to appeal to God, you know, here a miracle happens, you know, uh, kind of that Sidney Harris car cartoon. If, if you have to appeal to God, it's not a branch of physics. And, and yet he then went on, you know, kind of modus uh, ponens, you know, to say, like, you know, God has two roles. You know, he, he basically can establish the initial conditions of the physical state of the universe. And then he can also choose the laws of physics. And that's really his only two job description, you know, uh, on his on his job card. Those are the only things God is necessary for, at least in the physical world. We can talk about personal God some other time, but uh, but you know, he seemed to view himself and his work on singularities with Hartle, or, or rather, in the no boundary proposal, as eliminating the need for the God to choose the initial conditions at all, because the universe basically is responsible for its own initial conditions. Um, you know. The thing I always wonder about, and I've you know had this debate about Lawrence Krauss's work, 
when we say, well, the laws of physics allow you to extrapolate back from GR to, you know, in the Vilenkin uh, theory, uh, you can extrapolate and you can prove there's a, you know, geodesically incompleteness at, at a point in, in time. Uh, and that means that any expanding universe had an origin in time, essentially. But where did the laws of physics come from? That, that's the big question that, that I, you know, it's Sean Carroll, I've asked, he says it's a Hilbert space, but, you know, where does the Hilbert space come from? I, I find it's a lot of hiding the ball. So I, I'm curious, where do you come down in this? Where do the laws of physics come from? Um, it's well, a simple question. <laughs> Stephen considered that, 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 that his first book, A Brief History of Time, uh, was explaining the initial conditions of the universe. And that's the no boundary proposal that he worked on with Jim. And Jim is sensitive about this. Jim Hartle, uh, key, you know, key person in that, uh, not, not a flunky of Stevens, but, uh, you know, equal in, in that theory. Yeah. So that's, if you're watching this gym there, I, you know, <laughs> uh, I, I, cause people have a tendency to call it Stevens, no boundary, but, but right. that was the piece of his work, by the way, that he told me he was most proud of. Yes. So, um, mm -hmm. and, uh, then, so the first book, uh, brief history was that, uh, of course he wrote some other like nuts universe and nuts. So those are all, and when I wrote with him, the brief for history, those are all reworkings of yeah. brief history. Mm -hmm. uh, but then we wrote a totally new book, The Grand Design, and that answered the other question. Where did the, that 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 book was an answer to where did the laws of nature come from? Uh, and um, his answer was the answer of M theory, really. That 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 there are uh, depending on on you know on 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 the geometry, the vacuum, um, there the topology. There are different laws of physics. So Stephen felt based on his work with Jim Hartle, that the universe creation, which no one could can deny, was a quantum event, right? And um, when you put it together- Well, there are those that do dispute that. So Paul Steinhardt, Neil Turok, um, Roger Penrose. Uh, that, that it was a quantum event? I mean, they, the, the quantum theory applies, right? Well, no, they they say that the the bounce in the at least in the bouncing cosmology of Turok and and Steinhardt and Aegis, now there is a purely classical transition through the bounce. There's no quantum phase of the universe. Okay, well, well and then well, and then Sir Roger just has these eons that well, expand. Well, is that is that a semi-classical or is that uh, I mean, there's a classical phase where there's no no Planck's constant. Is that? In 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 which in in, in Penrose? I, I don't think Penrose feature in well, the Penrose, his work was classical, but, but I mean you can do it classically. Certainly, Stephen's early work was just classical, and then he applied quantum theory. And then, since we don't have quantum gravity, you do semi-classical approximations. But anyway, right? Uh, Stephen was saying that that you have to look at the universe like Feynman, it's quantum theory like Feynman did, and the universe has multiple histories, right? And and, um, and, and what that means a history. You know, if you're in a laboratory and there's a particle going from A to B, the history is its path. Right. And, and, um, and but if you're looking at the universe, the history of the universe is the states of the universe. And, and that to him, that includes uh, the, the laws of nature. So the laws of nature themselves are. Is an element of a Hilbert space? Yeah, an element, right. So, okay. so there are multiple universes developing, each with different laws, uh, with, with every possible set of laws, okay? Um, so, you know, in, in M theory, you know, they're out to say there's a landscape, there's all these possible M theory versions of M theory. Which, which one is it? His answer is they all existed. They all have, they're all there. Um, uh, and um, in the quantum group of, 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 of parallel histories in the Feynman sense, I don't trying to not to be too technical, but, but he's saying basically that there are, the universe began in every possible way. 
-hmm. And some of the universes allowed inflation and they be, and they, they lasted for a you know, finite long time and we could have stars and people develop and some recollapse right away. And some have, have um, these, this law of physics, some of that law of physics, and, and, and some very small fraction of them have laws of physics that actually enable life to develop, which we can talk about later if you're interested. But that's mm -hmm. a very interesting um, Definitely. Uh, thing that, 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 that most, if you just change the laws of physics by a percent, half percent here and there, and you, and you go through the evolution of the universe, you'll find that life could not have developed. Um, so there's a very special set of laws. I do want to talk about that just to put a pin in that because there is modern work of Fred Adams and the University of Michigan and even Lord Martin Rees, who I talked to earlier this week with uh, Mario Livio. They are seeming to suggest, and I believe what you just said to be true, but they are suggesting that the envelope, the parameter space is far wider for the evolution of you know stars of massive gravity, of electronic uh, chemistry, Etc. We can talk about the, the quadrupole and the CMB. There, they're suggesting Fred Adams in particular that our universe isn't particularly finely tuned. But, but I don't want to take yeah, away from okay. what you're saying because. Yeah, but there's been a lot of work, so I don't know. I, I, get, I, I didn't do the work, so I yeah. won't debate them on that. But uh, I've talked talk to Stephen about that, and and some of that I remember. It's in the book, but if you change the mass of electron by a half a percent, I mean, I'm not necessarily talking about not having stars develop, but you need a lot more than just having stars. They have to. They have to go through uh, and have a supernova. They have to they have to have the, the heavy elements created, and they have to be dispersed. Um, there's you know you change uh, the, the strong force by a little bit, and protons become unstable, and they decay too fast for any of this. I mean, there's all these very intricate things that have to happen for life to exist. There's the the um, there's one parameter that depends the on the fine carbon atom have to be just right, right? right. There has to be a certain resonance. The Hoyle, Hoyle resonance. Yeah, Hoyle, right, right, right. I mean, there's so much. And I don't know, like I said, that's not my field, but 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 we looked at that and Stephen pointed me towards certain books. But I don't I'm not I don't follow yeah. the you know, there might be other work recently that's questioning some of that. So I don't I don't know, but but um yeah, it's not just though the the development of stars, but um yeah. So yeah, I I, I wanna uh yeah, just so uh, okay. So I'll, I'll just, I'm not going to pull any punches with you because I have so much respect for you, just like you had respect for Stephen Hawking. Uh, and you didn't pull punches with him. In fact, you held his hand, uh, as we talked about earlier, you far from, you know, punched, uh, poor Stephen, but you know, it's far from being true that, that string, that string theory, let alone M theory has been, you know, validated or verified. Some say it's actively been refuted. I mean, there are people that say that, that M theory and string theory in particular have held back the progress of, theoretical physics for the last 50 years. And, and these aren't like slot as Shelley Glashow Whoa. has said, you know, so. I know I, I've had used to have just talks with John Schwartz at Caltech. Uh, yeah. Who's one of the founders of string theory. So I, I just, how could Steven, so I understand that. John, he, did not, John, I think resented the fact that Steven for years did not, was not a believer in string theory. Uh, and, and I think it was the M theory work for, by Witten that, that really convinced him. Um, and he, he, I mean, we talked about that many times, and he he felt that string theory that, that M theory was correct. And I wouldn't, I I have not seen anything that I look again, just like you talked about the uh, the fine tuning. Everything in physics is always being questioned. <laughs> yes, yes. And you can go to certain websites, and it's almost like there's a revolutionary breakthrough every week, and then we forget about it next week. Right. <laughs> so you know, I, I say that's fine tuning. You say these people say, yeah, you know, uh, M theory. Then people say no M theory. Yes, um, everything is in flux, and there's camps on both sides of almost everything because right. 
science is like that. Not that science stays like that. Eventually, it gets settled. Right. And in the case of M theory and string theory, uh, I you know I certainly haven't seen anything that would convince me that it's debunked. On the other hand, I haven't seen anything that would convince me that it's bunked. That's right. That, that that's the latter. Yeah, I'm well, not saying that's been you know. Agnostic, but I'm but 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 I working with Stephen, I took his you know point of view and and it was writing about helping him and working with him to write about his uh, ideas. Mm-hmm. And I you know I, I felt that I, I certainly didn't feel that they he was misguided. I just felt that people can certainly legitimately have doubts. And I have to say, for my own personal self, uh, you know, we wrote the book ten years ago. And the last 10 years, in my opinion, has been pretty depressing for the string theory, M theory crowd. Yeah. Uh, uh, from my point of view, or pretty, let's say for me, pretty um, surprisingly uneventful in terms of, of, of progress. And, yeah. and uh, so I, I don't know. I think Stephen believed it till the end, which mm-hmm. was just a couple of years ago. But um, yeah, it's interesting. I'll ask you in a couple minutes, and I have my closing questions that I ask all my guests. But one of the questions is, uh, hearkening back to Sir Arthur C. Clarke's uh, 2001, A Space Odyssey in the Kubrick movie, when these hominids encounter this obelisk on the plains of the savannah of Africa, and they hit it with a bone. And then, and later on, this obelisk appears on the surface of the moon, and, and it's supposed to be like a time capsule. So I'm going to ask you later, so I'm giving you a little homework assignment right now to be multitasking, as I know you're so capable of. Uh, and I asked all my guests, you know, what would you put on a monolith like that that could last for a billion years? And I asked this of Kamran Vafa, who is one of the most preeminent uh, theorists of any kind, but string theorists uh, in particular at Harvard University. He was on the podcast last week, and uh, and you can watch his answer. And he says he put on it the equations of string theory. And I'm thinking as I'm interviewing, you know, I just love him. I just love him so much. I can't like, you know, I, I can't like take him down. Like, what are you talking about? You know, uh, why would you do that? And and I only analogy I can make is like, if you ask me that question, Brian, what would you put on your monolith to last for a billion years? And and I said, oh, I put the bicep two results, you know, you know, which is like we knew that it now we know that it's at least as likely that it was contaminated by dust as by as by uh, pre- revealing the presence of primordial gravitational waves from inflationary origin. So it just seems strange to me that like that so many people put so much stock in something so much so that I feel and again I can't armchair analyze anybody, but uh, but that Stephen. You know, was kind of taken by a the singularity, uh, you know, no boundary uh, uh, proposal with Hartle, uh, and and kind of almost like confirmation bias. He wanted to. I mean, he was so proud of it that he felt like it really it was true, even though, as we both said, it's not clear if such a question is even well posed to verify or falsify the existence of an actual physical, not mathematical, physical singularity, and to validate or bunk or debunk, as you said, uh, M theory. So it's these two things that he built such a huge edifice on. To me, uh, I'm, well, I'm... To go back to what you said before, and to be clear, also on Stephen's no boundary proposal, it's 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 not universally accepted, certainly. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I guess I should have started all the things that I've been saying is this is the frontiers of physics. So everything yeah. I say... <laughs> it's provisional, I, yeah. You know, there's, there's another, side, another side to it. Some things are maybe 80%, you know, people believe this way, some maybe 30%. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, but we're not talking about stuff that 1% believe. So Stephen's stuff was mainstream, but but it's not, it's, it's far from, um, and, and, and that was something we struggled with in the book too, is like, how many disclaimers do you give? I mean, you yeah. don't want to have a footnote by everything you say and say, the other side says this, you know? Yes. Um, oh, so, you know, you say what you believe in. And, um, 
you know, hopefully it's clear that these were Stephen's Stephen's theories. Yeah. So I want before I close with those uh, final questions, I, I would love to do a part two just about the grand design because there's so much there in Feynman and um, Euclid's Euclid's rainbow. I always get your Feynman and Euclid's, Euclid's rainbow and Euclid's window. Yeah. Okay, I always mix those up. So thank you. Yeah, I'd love to do a part two someday. A memoir similar parallel to this, but about because I happen to be blessed to know Richard. Yes. Pretty well. Yeah, that was the first book I, I remember reading oh, yeah. that 2004. That was probably yeah. the first book I ever read by you. Um, Okay, so, but before I do the final questions, which I ask all my guests, I want to ask a question that only you could answer, which is uh, on a personal level, which was more, I would say more depressing to you when, when you finished the grand design, which you must have known would probably be one of the last books you'd write with him or last collaborations you'd have of him, or after he died, like, which was sort of a more final or more jarring to you emotionally event in your life and 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 you know platonic love affair with stephen hawking well when he died i mean uh you know i actually you know came to tears i i, I don't know why you know it's like everyone knew that he you know i knew he was going downhill and he was sick very sick and he also knew the whole time i knew him that that could happen any time as i said he had brushes with death every year and yet because he had brushes with death every year you feel that he's immortal because you know the first <laughs> right. time he has a brush with death. You, you get worried, and then they start going, "Oh, yeah, these things happen." Uh, so you know, hopefully, it'll come through. You know, he'll be okay. And then eventually, you go, "Oh, yeah, well, that that's just Stephen. That's that's nothing." You know, it's like, and, and as you and I alluded to, I, I had a brush with death during my um, writing of the book, and, and uh, I remember laying in the hospital bed going, "Oh my God." You know, he's going to outlive me. He's going to outlive me. Who would have thought? Who would have thought that he's going to look for uh, someone to replace me on the book instead of the other way around? You know, <laughs> so, um, you know, I thought I, I just didn't feel it wasn't real that he would ever die. And um, and so that, that was quite a, I mean, it was, it, was, uh, it was one of those things that, you know, it doesn't happen very often. But, like, you wake up the next day and you go, Is that, that didn't really happen, did it? You know, and... Um, but you know, I think he was ready to go, and uh, I talked about that in the book and and his, some of his uh, encounter he had, you know, near near the, the time that he died, and uh, he seemed to be ready to um, seemed to be ready to go. And I always felt that his purpose in life was accomplished when we wrote the grand design because he he had two questions that he had it really drove him and fueled his will to live in a way, in some way at least. Uh, well, one was, um, uh, you know. Um, how did the universe begin, as you said? And the other one was, where did the laws of physics come from? Those were the, you know, uh, how do we get here, basically, questions. And so the first one was a, briefer hist was a brief history. And then in the grand design, we really crystallized his answer to the other question. Now, so I felt like he, back in, when he was in his 20s, he, he had, you know, found a purpose in life and a reason to live and a reason to stop goofing off because he was a goof off until then. Uh, which was to answer these questions. And finally, you know, 2010-ish, you know, he realized that he had the answer and, and then we wrote that, that book. Uh, so I, I lied when I said that. That was my last question about uh, Stephen in particular. So uh, I want to ask you on uh, my father, 
uh, died about 14, 15 years ago. And I was taking care of him and I was, you know, getting ready, taking care of kids and, and so forth. How was it with you having young kids? And basically, yeah, I mean, you were literally a caregiver for one night of your life, at least, which must have been very, which was very harrowing, as I uh, will, you'll uh, read about in uh, Stephen Hawking, a memoir of physics and friendship. Uh, but uh, how was it balancing these two needs? I mean, you have this little kids and you're off going to Cambridge and, and working with him and he's coming there. And, and how do you balance those roles of kind of taking care of a parent and taking care of kids? Yeah. Um, you know, that's hard. I mean, everybody who's, a, I think, a professional uh, who's, you know, overworked or even actually not a professional. So many people in this country are overworked. You know, I lived in Germany for some years and in Bavaria and Munich, and they get, uh, I think, 16 holidays a year and six weeks of vacation on top of that. And, and, and you know, here we, we all work constantly. So I think it's uh, it was hard. You know, you you're, you you, um, you don't get sleep or you feel guilty a lot of the time. You you know, when I'm with the kids, I'm thinking I better get some work done. When I'm working, I think I should spend time with the kids. I, I always put the kids as my priority, though. Yeah. And, um, and so... Um, I would, you know, that was the two things I did, and uh, and I would, uh, you know, pass off whatever just to, to spend time with them when they were yeah. growing up, and then I would just say, well, I won't sleep tonight, and I get my work done after that. Wow. Uh, and then the last thing is, this happens to me often with my late father. Um, yeah, I'm like, oh, I got to tell dad because Mike, and then I'm like, he's not there. And if you could get a text message to wherever Steven is right now, uh, what would you send him? What would you want to tell him about the, the books or the, or his work or, or physics in general? What would you want to send to him if you get that one, well, one way text message? Oh, well, I was going to say, I wouldn't send anything about here. I'd say, you tell me. What's <laughs> no, it's one way. No, no, no. <laughs> or he says, it's very hot where I'm now. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, I think that, that, uh, you know, uh, I would just say, Hey, Steven, uh, guess what? Uh, you were wrong about something because you're getting this message from me and you've been dead for a few years and P.S. I love you. <laughs> That's wonderful. Okay, Len, thank you so much. I want to ask you the three questions I ask all my guests. Uh, sometimes I ask, I, I, I make it four questions when I'm talking to like a, a financial advisor or a psychologist. I'll ask them to unify gravity and quantum mechanics in under one equation. And they, oh, what are you talking about? But actually, I'm going to skip that one because I know you could do it, but there's not enough room in the margin of this conversation. But I do want to ask you something <clears throat> that relates to, to, to the religion of Judaism, but it actually applies to everybody including Alfred Nobel, as you'll understand in a second. Um, and it's about an ethical will. So Alfred Nobel, when he died, he left a material will. He had no kids. He had no wife. And he left almost all of his uh, his material money to go to this Nobel Prize, which I stole from Frank Wilczek last week. No, no, it's a piece of Hanukkah gelt uh, that has his image on it. But um, it's a notion that you can also leave ethical values. And in Hebrew, it's known as a zava'ah, an ethical will. And Alfred did that too, because he required that his, uh, that his, uh, the things that were rewarded with the Nobel Prize be given to those inventions or discoveries that had the greatest benefit to mankind. Uh, and first of all, you know, do you feel Stephen should have deserved a Nobel Prize alongside of uh, Sir Roger? And then second of all, what would you put in an ethical will encapsulating your wisdom for your biological, but also your ideological children? Well, I think that Stephen, um, 
felt that he would not get a Nobel Prize because uh, Nobel Prizes are, are generally almost exclusively given to uh, theories that have been experimentally verified. And uh, it was a big surprise when Roger got it. And uh, I think that if Stephen were alive, that he should have gotten it with Roger. But, you know, they, they, they can only give it to three. So God knows how they would do that. And, you know, I think the Nobel Prizes are, you know, uh, often unfair, let's say. Um, yes. And, Someone and, should write a book about that. Yeah. And, you know, and there was a scene in the book about Stephen and Nobel Prizes. But uh, ethical will is interesting because I did write one. Uh, my you rabbi, did. when the kid's first child, Alexei, was born, uh, you know, I wrote, asked me to write an ethical will. I said, I don't remember. He's 30 now. I don't, I don't think I kept <laughs> it. Go ask him. <laughs> my ethics have left me. Uh, I hope um, you don't put, do that with your crypto coin that you leave to your kids. Yeah. Don't so lose I the wallet. I, you know, my real answer would be I'd have to think about that, but I can give you a superficial answer, which is, you know, I, I think that, um, uh, you know, the Hippocratic Oath, uh, I think that's part of it, but one of the principles of medicine is to do no harm. And I think that's what you, you should live your life. First of all, do, do no harm. Very nice. And then, and secondly, try to do whatever good you can. Uh, but first of all, do no harm. <laughs> and, and, and thirdly, have a good time. But mm -hmm. Obey one and two. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Don't forget the, the fourth rule is don't forget one, two, and three. Yeah. Okay. So the second question that I ask all my guests relates to Arthur C. Clarke, and that's the monolith question. So is there anything in the laws of physics as Feynman, you know, for sure, because you wrote about this in Feynman's Rainbow, Feynman had the so-called cataclysm question, which is if in some cataclysm, all of scientific knowledge were to be destroyed and only one sentence passed on to the next generation of creatures, what yeah. statement would... so? I want to ask you if you could put that some statement on a monolith and that would be launched into space. It's funny. I did this with Andrurian, Carl Sagan's widow. And she said, I did this on the Voyager one record, golden record. It has my brainwaves and it, it's uh, NASA launched it on a 4 billion year journey to the stars. But anyway, what would Leonard and Ladna, what would you put on a monolith to last for all time, essentially, or to communicate discoveries, something brilliant uh, about humankind? Well, I guess that what, what I would, I, I, okay, I, I would recognize, I, you know, I would, I would put down something recognizing that, that our knowledge is provisional, that, that, that um, you know, Newton thought he had the answer, um, and he didn't. Maxwell thought he had the answer, and he really didn't, because then Planck came along, and then, uh, you know, we keep revising our answers, so I, I wouldn't. Uh, you know, Feynman answered that question with the atom. He said, that, you know, the idea of the atom is the most important, you know, idea. I don't know how you state that, uh, but but um, so so what I would say to them is, here's you know, here's what we know now. If I could get that, and that, so so I, so you know, I would put down um, Maxwell's equations uh, for light, and then I would put down. I would probably put. I would put down. A, Non-relativistic well, yeah, non quantum theory, or maybe relativistic quantum theory. I don't think I would put even QED. Uh -huh. Guess what? QED is a um, asymptotic, you know, it, it's, it's non, uh, QED, it, 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 you know, it has mathematical issues. Mm. You'd stop at the Dirac equation. I would stop at the Dirac or even before that. Schrodinger. So this is, these are the principles we've discovered as of now. Uh, so you'll know what we believe now. And I wouldn't go as far as, you know, the QED, which is the, um, you know, for people who don't know, it's the quantum electrodynamics, the theory of um, 
the quantum theory with elementary particles being created and destroyed, electrons and positrons and so forth. And, and, and that works extremely well to 12 decimal places, et cetera. But, but we know that mathematically it has issues. So I wouldn't put it there. Yeah. I, I would stop at the last place where we're pretty solid. You know, I would certainly wouldn't put strings. I don't want to put spe- things that we're speculating about. But these are the things that we feel we know. They're probably wrong, too. <laughs> but but you know, this is where we are now. Uh, and, you know, good luck. And, you know, if you're so fucking, excuse me, so <laughs> freaking advanced, uh, I want you to, to find me in my death four billion years ago or in heaven somewhere and tell me what the final answer is. That's what I would <laughs> It'll reconstitute you in there. Cosmic bisquick. Yeah. They'll have yeah. some bisquick out of you. Uh, yeah, my thing would be don't eat me or, you know, go somewhere else. But uh, but that's an actual very, very deep um, excursion. Thank you, Lenny. That, that was uh, very, very impressive and all-encompassing. I think intellectually honest. As I said, I love Kamran Vafa. You just want to hug the guy. He's a mensch. But putting that you know basically on a monolith to me means he's even going beyond qed to saying m theory string theory is the ultimate theory of nature and i agree with you 100 percent. it's it's far too provisional at least at this stage but that's part of my mission on this podcast is to talk to brilliant uh, theorists like yourself and and like Kumran and and shelly glashow etc and really understand what makes them tick and survey the landscape, a literal landscape of theoretical physics, so that someday we can think about experiments of everything. We spend a lot of time on theories of everything. I want to do experiments of everything. Okay, so the last question, now we're going to go back in time. I just took you forward in time, a billion years. Now I'm going to take you backwards in time, uh, 20 years or 30 years. Uh, and that uh, relates to this uh, so-called third law of Sir Arthur C. Clarke. So the podcast, when it comes out, you'll listen to it. It has Sir Arthur C. Clarke's actual voice saying, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And so we have that uh, as part of our Arthur C. Clarke Center here that I'm co-director of. His second law is for every expert, there's an equal and opposite expert. I like that. I like to use that in faculty meetings. Uh, (laughs) And his last law, his third law, so-called third law, is the only way of discovering the limits of the possible is to venture a little way past them into the impossible. And that's the name of this podcast, the Into the Impossible podcast. I want to ask you, what thing about life when you were 20 years old, 30 years old, seemed impossible, but then you did it? And what kind of advice would you give to your past self uh, to uh, to go and have the courage to go a little bit into the impossible? Well, I've had, uh, you know, as you know, a, quite a checkered career. And when I was, um, almost everything I've done, I thought was impossible. But I didn't, people at least told me that it was. So when I was uh, uh, studying out in physics, I was told that there were no jobs for theorists. You better become an experimentalist or just do something else because you're wasting your time. And And then... I, I, I did. I managed to get a job as a theorist, and good thing because as an experimentalist with only these things, thumbs, I wouldn't have gone very far. Um, then I, you know, I, I, I stopped and decided I, I wanted to. I'm, I've always done physics, and I can, you know, publish throughout my career, no matter what I was doing. But, but I took a break from academic physics, turned it into a hobby, and I said, you know, and I had a tenured um, uh, position offered. And I turned it down and I said, no, I'm going to write in Hollywood. And people said, you're crazy. And then I wrote for like nine years in Hollywood, Star Trek, The Next Generation, MacGyver, uh, The Gary Shandling Show, the old show Night Court. I mean, I did a lot of decent shows. So that was supposed to be impossible. Um, At some point I I quit and I said, um, I'm going to write books for a living. And my agent 
uh, Susan, if you're listening, I, she, did, she seemed like, what? <laughs> um, and that's so, you know, that's so, so I, I don't, I, I guess I would say that I wouldn't tell my, I would just say what, what, what I, what I've learned from all this is that, that, well, maybe I just haven't found the impossible yet. And the important thing is to follow your passions and your dreams. Um, and don't not do it because you're afraid, not because don't not do it because you think it's not possible, because look at the different things that I've done. And I really don't have any particular talent in any of it, but I, I managed to keep doing this and that and, and do that different things. But I, I just keep pushing and I always have a plan B. <laughs> so <laughs> you don't want to be homeless on the street and have a plan B, but shoot for plan A. That's my advice. <laughs> Reach for Plan A, but have your uh, for Plan B, but have a planet backup uh, beneath yeah, you. Anyway, Plan B is fine, and when you're tired of that, you'll find a, you know, a new Plan A. Uh, Leonard Milano, thank you so much for going into the impossible. Thanks, Brian. It's been fun. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic.